Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the Dublin Festival of History 2022, Monto, Madam's Murder and Black Coddle, Terry Fagan chronicles the history and reminisces about a part of Dublin rich in the memories of its people. Recently republished, The History of the Monto District from Terry Fagan of the North Inner City Folklore Project draws on rich oral history collections from the area, explaining how Dublin's Monto came to be and why it lasted for so long. Terry Fagan is a historian and tour guide with a particular interest in Dublin's North Inner City. This episode was recorded at 14 Henrietta Street, Dublin on the 11th of October 2022. We've collected the history since 1970, and uh, so we built a huge archive of audio recordings, photographs, because everybody seemed to have a couple of photographs lying around of their families and things like that. Not many, but some had them. And then some people said, we have some artefacts from the family granny and this and the whole, would you like them? So we built up a huge archive of, uh, 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 of artefacts and different stuff like that. So, but a lot of the stories kept coming up about was growing up in the, in the north inner city, and particularly about the Monto, right? And a lot of them had, came from Railway Street uh, in around the north inner, the, the Railway Street area in the centre of the north inner city there, and they'd moved out in 1930s, 19, around 1930s, uh, when you were knocking down the Monto. Some of them, some of them went to Ballybox, some of them went out to, out to Cabra and various places like that. But so we were able to track them down and he gave us the stories of what they witnessed in Monto. And some of the people that I interviewed, one of them was born in 1893 or something like that, so she's a great memory of the city and of the rising and various things like that. So we, 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 we recorded a lot of that stuff. And uh, so basically, I'll start, with the, I'll start with the Monto. So this here is the entrance in. This is looking in from Talbot Street. I mean, you know, wait there. Uh, so this is looking in from, from Talbot Street in, into uh, what's, what's now James Joy Street, which at that time now, that was Corporation Street. And the arrow points across here to where the lab is. Anybody familiar with Foley Street and the, the lab? That points over to where the lab was, uh, the lab is today in Foley Street, but that was for Shanahan's pub. But uh, it was the, as in Joyce's book, it's the entrance into Nighttown. And uh, so basically from the people that, that, we, that, we, uh, that we interviewed, they told us all these stories about the madams and about the, 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 the women, the prostitutes that were there. They called them the poor unfortunates. That's the name they gave to the women, the women uh, that were, that were and many of them trapped into a life of prostitution. And uh, so, so basically they, they told us a lot, of, a lot of the stuff. So Mondo was run by two sets, two sets of madams. So you have the first set of madams, you have the likes of uh, Mrs. Mac- Meg Arnott, Lizzie Arnott, Maria Lynham, and Mrs. Cohn. They're the first set of madams of this. Now, there's other madams, lesser known madams, uh, that were, were involved in, in, in Monto. So they're the first madams that set up in the area. And basically, what it was, like the, the story, they're going into a long story, was when the, gen- when the gentry marched out, the poor marched in, and the speculators moved in and bought up the, the houses in around that area, right? And basically, packed as many as the poor they could get into them. And uh, some of the madams that, that, that's mentioned here originally came from the south side of the city. They were in around the Irish town area and you were getting the hassle off the, off the fleece. So they relocated over here in, into the north inner city there, into what's now James Shy Street and around that area. 
and uh, they set up the, 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 the prostitution there. And it was the biggest red light district in Europe. Like, it was a huge, when I say huge, it was, it was estimated as 1,600 women operated in Monto, right, in, in, in the heyday. That's the, the estimate that they had. So the madams, the brothels in Monto were in first class, second class, third class, and then you had what was known as shilling houses. And then from that then, the women then, when they lost their looks in the first class, they ended up in the second class, the third class, and then they ended up on the streets, right? So the, the, the women came from all over Ireland, England, Scotland and Wales. And believe it or not, there were some Eastern European women who had attached themselves to the British Army regiments coming back from the Crimea and things like that. And a lot of them had located outside the Kura the Rens. So they, they, they located out there. But a lot of the women, and some of the women we know, were actually the wives and girlfriends of British soldiers uh, from what, what we came across. And uh, so basically how they ended up in prostitution was the husband or the boyfriend was sent uh, uh, to fight on behalf of the empire in another country and they were killed in action. So word was sent back, sorry, your husband was killed or your boyfriend was killed. So the British army weren't going to look after them. So they found themselves on the streets. And fine, if they could get some employment, fine, they were okay. They might be able to sort themselves out. But if not, the only way they're going to stop themselves from ending up in the, in the North or South Dublin Union was the sex trade and many of them made their way down into Monto. Now the madams, as I said, the likes of these madams right there, they had what was known, according to the locals, these guys were the, the fancy men. And they would go around, they'd go around the Hackney stations, where the, mainly the taxis was in those days, were, were uh, 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 Hackney drivers, horse and cars. And uh, basically they'd hang around there and they'd, they'd pick women up and with the say, I know someone that's looking for a, for a, uh, for a, for a cleaner or, to help out in the house and the whole. So a lot of women were twisted into the area and found themselves into the prostitution end of it. And uh, so, so you had you had all you had these 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 madams here running the area. Now, and basically, uh, it got a mention in the Encyclopedia Britannia as as were with Algiers, right? And that's that shocked mainstream public opinion that this here there was in the second city of the British Empire, open prostitution was taking place. Like it wasn't just in the Monto, there was places all around Stevens Green and different places that was doing, but, but Monto was the biggest. And basically what happened then was uh, there was, uh, uh, there was uh, uh, Chief Commissioner at the time, uh, Sir John Ross, he took on a plan to, uh, to, uh, to, to take down Monto, to close it down. Now the madams, when they ran the prostitution in Monto, they, they had to protect, so Monto, Monto was, uh, has these, uh, you can see some of the madams that are listed here in 1887, some of them are tenements, then you have Mrs. Cohn in 1888, and the various, the various uh, times, 82, 83, 84, 85, and the different names. I think Mrs. Bruco, we believe, I think, was a Mrs. Mean, right? And uh, so you can see where these, these would, a lot of these would have been the first, first class brothels. And you can see that they declined in 1906 when Joyce, uh, was writing about uh, uh, about about the, the uh, about the, the book on walking on the book, uh, Leopold Bloom, uh, Ulysses. So a lot of these a lot of these uh, houses uh, went in it went from the first class brothels went into the K more or less. So uh, so so John Ross then took on a plan to uh, to close down because who come into Monto? The cream of Irish and English society come into there, from the street cleaner to the king. Right, and King Edward VII uh, was a frequent visitor, according to local legend. He'd done his military service in the Curragh, and uh, 
when he was the Prince of Wales, and his, the, his fellow officer smuggled in an actress called Nelly Clifton for his entertainment, and then he was frequent with, with the Monto. And there's a piece in the Irish Times, The King and Monto, where it states that uh, uh, the king, when he was on the royal visits, he stayed in the Voice Regal Lodge, and he decided to slip the bodyguards. Now, this is a piece in the Irish Times, and he'd go for a walk down his old haunts down around Monto. So himself and the missus and the, the Duke of Clarence go for a walk down into the thing. And in the times, the piece is where he's walking down through the streets and there's a woman in one of the houses cleaning now pots thing, and she throws the water out onto the street and it goes over the king. And then she shouts at him, come on in and I'll give you a cup of tea, unaware that I was the king. But that's some of the pieces in there. So the madams were colourful characters in many ways, but they were vicious. Because most of the madams that we know carried cutthroat razors. They, they, they were the ones. Now, the pimps that they had working for them, they carried cutthroat razors and lead pipes. Right? That was their, their, their uh, weapons of choice. So, so basically, uh, in the first-class brothels, there was an entrance fee into it. There was carpets on the floor. It was all nicely done up. And you had pimps in the inside and on the outside, cases any messing or any carrying on. Uh, they were there to deal with it. Like, you know, so the madams were always in competition with one another. Those that had the, the nicest looking girls got the best clients, and that's the way they think they worked. But then when the girls lost their looks, as I said, they'd go into the second and then the third and then onto the streets. And then from the streets, they were operating out the laneways. And uh, so in some of the houses, now this here is uh, madam, this, as I said, Monta was uh, run by two sets of madams. This would be one of the later sets of madams, May Ogelon. She was known as the Queen of Monto, right? She ran, she had her shops here on Corporation Street. She had a number of shops there on Corporation Street there. And that's, that's, that's of uh, 1970s, late 1970s photographs where they're, they're pulling down the, the houses there. But her, her building, her shop was there and was in perfect nick and we tried to save it, you know, to, to, as part of the history. But anyway, look, developers was, was more, to, to, uh, to knock down, to, to, to put apartments on it and the whole so they pulled it down. So the madams, the, the mad in some of the houses, sorry, just to give you an idea, so when, when Sir, jo Sir John Ross was tackling the prostitution, he was dead worried to the madams. The madams, to, to make sure the clients were protected, the madams had groups of men who were known as the whistlers, right? The, according to the locals, they stood on the corners, right? Uh, one facing out on the, on, the, on the Talbot Street, watching the nearby Stower Street. And then all through the streets near the corners, these guys stood. And they were told not to move, basically, that they got their drink and they got their food there. And the sole job was to watch for police movements coming into the area. Now, we know should the police come in in ones and twos, he didn't sound the alarm. But should they come in in, in, in force, they'd whistle to one another. And the whistling would go through the streets. And those uh, pimps, uh, uh, whistlers, nearest to the brothels would bang on the door. Tell the madam they're coming in the force, get the clients out. And some of them, some of them had, this photograph here is actually, as I said, Foley Street. This would be one of the, uh, the streets that would be later, uh, which Monta would get his nickname from. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, so uh, that would be later, would be called Montgomery Street and then later Foley Street. So I'll just go back here a second here, see if I can get the, see if I can get the, now, some of, the, some of the houses had these tunnels attached to them, right? Now, I was in, that's my brother actually in one of the tunnels, right? And we found old Victorian coins and uh, gas lamps and all sorts of stuff in those things that we had them, we had them in their collection. Now, that, that 
massive tunnel. You could actually need to drive a carriage through it. That went under what's now called Liberty House Flats today, and it went across into, uh, into what's now Shamrock Dairy and it went back into Garden Street. So it was a huge big tunnel, so we, we raped the video some of it. Now, because we went so far in, it was too dark, so it just fairly fall down somewhere. So, uh, so, so basically, the madams had some of these attached to them. And when you hear people talking about the tunnels in Monto, basically what they were, right, were the old, the old coal cellars. You ever see them on the streets with the round, the round oh, thing? Yeah. So they were, they, were, they, were the they were the things that they had together. So they were knocked into one yeah, another. Yeah, yeah, when pre people put the coal in and the things down in the cellar. But the madams had these knocked into one another, either side of the house, right? So should, the, should, the, should the, uh, the police raid the houses? They come down into the basement, went into the, cup, into the coal thing and stepped in through them and come up with a few doors out and walked away. And that's the system that they had set up. But there was some big tunnels, and there is one or two of them still there in the area that we know of, right? And one, that one, one big one is, is at the back on Railway Street next to where the Magdalene Laundries is there. So, so Mrs. Mike Bellacone and Meg Arrington, all those madams, they, they, they were running a... a you know, having great success with the prostitution. When Sir John Ross then took her on the, the thing to close down Monto, he, he realised the, uh, the, the system the madness had, and he sent the police raids in from every angle into Monto and effectively closed up Monto, right? Now, Sir John Ross thought he was dealing with, 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 with silly women uh, in many ways. So the madness of Monto basically just called the, all the prostitutes he had working for them. And he said, look, ladies, if you want to make some money, go up into Sackville Street, or O'Connor Street, and tell for business there. So now we have hundreds of prostitutes out of Monto, in around the streets, all around the city centre, looking, looking to try and help get business up and running. So Sir John Ross then was petitioned by women, a lot of women, who were complaining to Sir John Ross that he couldn't walk down the streets with their husbands or their boyfriends without these women on the streets offering them sex and wherever it was and the whole lot. And they petitioned him to get them off Sackville Street. And the story goes, he threw his hands up in the air and he gave him the green light or the red light to come back into Monto and he opened up again. And that's how Monto opened up again, right? And uh, so then they, they come up with a plan that, that they, would, uh, they, would, they would build, uh, they would build they'd buy some of the property and build social housing and try and close it down that way. So, so basically what he did is... Uh, they come up with a plan to buy, this is a, it's Foley Street, but it was originally called World's End Lane, then it became Montgomery Street, after Elizabeth Montgomery married the wealthy developer. And little did he know that his wife's maiden name of Montgomery would come short for Monto, and that's how <laughs> it gets the name, right? And uh, so, so basically, so they decided to buy property on that, and they, they, they had a meeting with Dublin Corporation, that that was the plan that they had. So when they announced it in Dublin Corporation, what do you think happened? They announced in Dublin Corporation that you're going to buy property on in the area. Some of the councillors went out and bought the property themselves. Yeah. Yeah, and it's in the 1914 report where they were selling it back to themselves. Right? And they, would, they discovered now it's in the housing report of 1914. So, what's new? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so basically, they built, these, they built these houses here. And at the back of them, right? Now, when they were built, and they were opened in 1906, and they renamed the street from Montgomery Street to Foley Street after John Henry Foley. Now, John Henry Foley lived down here, just on the right-hand side in the photograph there. That's where he lived. So they named the street after him. And uh, basically, at the back of those houses, they, they, they built these. Now, I, I was born there in, the, in corporation buildings, right? 
So, so basically, you see the big gates. So, so John Ross said, look, how are we going to protect the new social housing? Because they, they were luxury apartments in those days because they had running water and they had toilets inside them compared to the tenements with uh, toilets in the backyards and things like that. So, uh, so basically, what happened was they came up with the plan that they put the big massive gates across there, they, they paid a caretaker a pound a week, gave them a big stick and a uniform, and he chased the prostitutes out should they come in. <laughs> but that wasn't good enough for Sir John Ross that, uh, and the, the police came up with another plan. Right, so they came up with another plan that they, they would uh, build a big wall through the whole area and block off the lower class brothels. So you can see the wall in this photograph here, right? So it's a 20 foot wall. That wall was there and still in the 1980s. That wall was still there. So they blocked off the, the brothel quarter. So where the arrow was pointing in, there was Liberty House Flats in that photograph there. But that was the entrance into Portland Street. That would lead into the lower class brothels. So when you went in there, you turned and left, you went into places like Faithful Place, Elliot Place. There was places called Nickleby Palace Yard, uh, Nickleby after Charles Dickens' novel, Palace Yard, and various other places all around there. And they were mainly two-story houses, some, some single-story houses, but mainly two-story houses and in there. So that was the lower-class brothel. So they had the wall blocked off, right? And they had the gates here on corporation buildings, and they had Foley Street patrolled. So they were able to kind of keep, uh, keep the prostitution out. Now, we know from locals, when we interviewed, that some of the men would stand at the front gates of corporation buildings, stopping the prostitutes from coming in into the, the, the social housing, right? And when they opened these in 1906, corporation buildings had two sides. Let's see if it gets one. There was two of these. That's one here on the left, and there's another one to that side. But the one on the left, they found it hard to get people to go into them, even though they had running water and toilets in them, because the back windows were overlooking the brothel quarter, right? And they had a bit of a problem getting them to go in. So they came up with a plan that they'd lower the rent down a shilling, right? So people just went in, took, took the offer for the children, and then just blocked up the back window, stopped the kids from looking out, so they cheap rent. And that was one of the ways they'd, they'd done it. So, uh, so, so basically, uh, so then the, the first set of madams uh, started to die off, and then what was to come was the second set of madams, like, like May Oblong, Like May, Madame May Oblong, she was known as she was known as the Queen of Monto. She drove around the area in a carriage, like the Queen. Now, how I know that? Because I interviewed a woman whose uncle was a driver, and she, she told me that she used to, uh, she used to, uh, he, when he finished dropping the Madame off, he'd come around and pick her up in the carriage, and he'd take her around the area. And she said it was all decked out with fine seating in it, and the, and the horse had all this brass and things on the whole. She said it was a beautiful carriage, and uh, May would use that for going around the streets at night to check and make sure the girls were in the right places. So the madams had the area cornered off, the different parts of the area. It was like, like the drugs. They all had their pictures in Monto. And they had the girls. She had girls that were on the streets. You had girls like Lily at the lamppost and, and, uh, and various names that the, the locals gave them. But as I said, you're known as the, the, the poor unfortunates. And then what happens then is, uh, so when the likes of May Oblong and then Becky Cooper, I should have a photograph of Becky here. That's Becky Cooper here. She had a house uh, on Railway Street there. Her house is here, right? So you had Becky Cooper, you had Mrs. Mean, Paula Means, a famous poet, Paula Means' great-grandmother. And you had, uh, you, had, you had Polly Butler, and then you had Mrs. McKenna, and various other things. So Monto, 
as well as, well as uh, running the prostitution, all the madams rent shops. They all had grocery shops and sold paraffin oil and coal and things like that. And they were also all money lenders, right? And you were costumers to the women as well. So you, they, were, they, they had everything covered uh, uh, with regards to making money. So, uh, so basically, uh, so they, they took her over. Uh, when the first set of madams started to die off, around 1910, they, they took her over. And they, a lot of the houses, the first class brothels had started to, to, to kind of declined in many ways, and they took over the houses and things like that. Now, they would be in for a windfall in many ways. When the, when the, the 1913 lockout came about, when the, the trouble was starting to rise in Ireland, uh, the lockout, and then basically the windfall would come in 1916 when the Easter Rising started, when the British poured thousands of troops into the city to quell the rising. And they would remain then to 1922 in the area. So the Madams were into a, in, into a windfall. And we know we've lots of stories where uh, 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 even accounts of British officers is standing outside the talking to the Madams outside the brothels and going off with the girls and things like that. And uh, so we, uh, let's see. So yeah, just to go back onto this one here. So, so basically when the girls in the brothels of Monto became pregnant, right? They were no longer useful to the madams, right? Many of them were cast out onto the streets, right? And the only one that ever helped them was the local women. See, even though Monto was a big red light district, 99% of the people that were in there had no connection to the prostitution, <coughs> but they had to live there. Because the madams had the British army on their side, they had the police on their side, they had, they had the, uh, the DMP and RIC police, they had the, they had the landlords on their side and the whole lot. So they were into, they, they were into everything, right? And uh, so the people couldn't complain, they just had to live with it, right? And uh, so but when they became pregnant and they were tossed out of the brothels, they, they could be seen sleeping in the doorways, right? And then what would happen would be the local people, particularly women, would come down and try and help them. And they'd, they'd, let, they'd bring them in. In some cases, they slept under a stairway or in a cubby hole type of a thing there. And they would, uh, they would put down straw, because most people were sleeping on straw in the tenements anyway, in a thing called the polyas which was a, a flour sack stuffed with straw, right? And that's what they, they lay on, you know? But they'd make the girl comfortable enough. And basically, we were told that the, the women, the, the only women in the houses that were helping them would bring them down tea in the tenement china, which was a jam jar of tea, and give them the tea in the tenement china. And then, when it came time to have the baby, they sent for this woman here, the, the midwife of Monto, Mrs. Dunedin. Now, she was absolutely fearless. She stood up the pimps, or anybody hitting their wives, anything like that, she'd run around the pubs at them. She was absolutely fearless, right? She'd, she'd go for them, like, you know. But she, she would deliver the babies in Monto, right? And what would happen is, right, is that when the baby was born in the house, the mother would say to the, 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 the people that took her in, will you mind me, Choi, will I go off and get somewhere to live and bring the baby, you know? So they agreed. So once that girl stepped outside the door, they were gone, they were not coming back. So the local people didn't hand them up to the state or anything like that. They read them as their own. And they're known in the area as the Monto babies. Now, I, interview, I interviewed about a half dozen of them. And how I know how your Monto babies was, because when I was interviewing, we say, Mary, say, go see Johnny. He's a Monto baby. Now, I wouldn't say, uh, Johnny, uh, do you remember your mother and like that, a connection with you? I'd just say, what did you see in Monto? What was it like, you know? So we came across a lot of, a lot of that stuff, like, you know, and uh, a lot of stories the way uh, that women did have babies in Monto and brought the, 
outside of Monto, but brought the babies in and left them in the hallways of Monto. And the local people just take them in. Wherever it was, he just kept them as rare them as their own. Right. But Mrs. Dunleavy was absolutely fearless, right? And we have some great stories of her. She befriended a girl uh, uh, who, who she, got, uh, she got married on uh, just during the lockout, her husband, and he was working on the docks. And uh, basically what happened was uh, uh, when he went back after the lockout was over, he was blacklisted and his new wife made, uh, went down to see the boss on behind his back and I pleaded for his job back that he was demented, the home and the house and the whole lot. And uh, so the boss said, what will you do? So she did whatever she had to do to get him his job back. And then he found out that uh, what his wife had did through the walkers when he was in there, there was a whispering campaign that his wife had been with the boss. So he came back and, and, and uh, broke up the house. He didn't hear her. This is what we were told. And uh, he left. And then she got the name as a prostitute, even though she wasn't one. She just tried to help her husband. And then what happened then was, uh, then she, uh, then she, she was, went back living with her mother, then decided she had the name as a prostitute, so she started to take to the drink, and then eventually then she did become a prostitute. She started working for the Madame Zamanto, right? And then we have a story where, where in, in 1920, a husband must have joined the IRA at some stage, that he was in, involved in, in an attack on the British in the area, and he ran into Monto. Right, to get away from the British, and he ran into one of the houses, and his wife was in the room that he ran into, and she saved him from, from uh, capture by the black and tans. And uh, so I said, so I said did, she, did, did he ever come back for her? She said he promised her he'd come back after the war was over. And she said he did come back, and he took her out of Monto, but she said she didn't live, she died shortly after being taken from the area. So we've all those kinds of stories connected to, to Mrs. Dunleavy. So, so let's see back here. So this would be Mrs. Mack's uh, famous brothel where King Edward VII would have uh, frequented. It's now, it's now owned by Mrs. Main. And you can see the shop there, Main's shop, uh, at the side there. It's where, uh, what you call it, uh, where they sold the uh, uh, groceries and things like that. And uh, so Mrs. Main ran, ran the prostitution there. Now, when I say the madam ran the prostitution, they had, they had uh, let women who would, who would look after the houses for them. And they had women who do the cleaning and do the washing and things like that. And then the kids in, uh, in Monto would run messages for the, for the, for the poor, what they called the poor unfortunates. And according to the, 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 the locals, that they, they, were, they were good women. That if they, if they found out that there was a local woman having a baby and uh, they used to collect money between them and leave her, buy some clothes and leave her outside the house for, for the woman to, 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 to get. So uh, by all accounts they were good, but the madams used them all the time. And uh, so, but they played, the other thing about the, the, the things of Monto was uh, the women of Monto played, played a role in, in, in the war of in, in, the, in, the, in the fight for Irish freedom. Because in Dan Breen's uh, statement he gave to the, to the, uh, to the, about getting a pension, the whole, he recalled the ladies of the Nycone at the Phil Shanahan's pub. Phil Shanahan's pub was a, a pub there on the corner of Foley Street and Corporation Street. It was an IRA pub. Phil Shanahan had been elected to the first dial, but he ran a pub there. And uh, the ladies, Dan Breen said, the ladies of the night used to pinch the guns on the British soldiers and bring in the information. Now, we know from talking to people that they used to pass on the pillow talk that they get talking to the soldiers in the brothels 
and pass her in there. So the old story is the, the, the ladies in Mont have done more damage to the British than the Republican movement. <laughs> so half the garrisons were out sick with venereal diseases and all sorts of things. So, so they didn't get a state pension or they didn't get medals or anything like that. So the, 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 the madams were making uh, plenty of money. And we know some of them invested in a lot of property. You know, Mrs. Mayne now did. She bought a lot of property in the city area. And uh, the likes of May Oblong and things like that, like, you know. Becky Cooper didn't, right? Becky, 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 for some reason or another, Becky, uh, Becky uh, ended up drinking all her money that she made in the thing, and she pawned everything she owned in the nearby pond of Jack Rafters, just right beside the, uh, where the photograph was taken to, to the right. She pawned everything, right? And she was kind of known in the area as, she, she's a great, she, but she'd reach out to the homeless people and help them. And she'd also see kids on the street, she'd buy them sweets and things like that, like, you know. But she kept a parrot, and when you went into a house, the parrot you'd say, Becky's not here, Becky's not here. <laughs> you know, so, uh, so you had you, you've, you've, you all, all those things. So you had the lane up there, where the arch is there on the, on the, on the right of the photograph. That's Ma led, led into Mabbott Lane. That lane is still there today, and it still retains the old name of Mabbott Lane after Mabbott Street. Right, Mabbott Street was the entrance, as I said, into Monto. So that, 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 that retains the old name. And then we have a, a story uh, on Beaver Street. There was a girl operated there and, uh, on Beaver Street. That was a, that was a pitch. And uh, she was known a shilling ago. That's what she charged for the sex, right? And she specialised in the, in the Hackney drivers, right? And uh, she, she had her... Uh, I wonder if I got a photograph of a house. Yeah. Yeah. So she, she operated here, one of the houses here, right? There's the big wall in the photograph coming through the area. So can you see there, yeah? Yeah. So th th there's, there's the, 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 the big wall coming come through the area. So Shilling Ago operated there. And the man that told me, Billy told me, he said she carried a lot of money on it. And uh, there was two guys trying to rob her, but she was very cute. But she said she wasn't, he wasn't that cute in the end. So she went down, she made a mistake and left Beaver Street which is just off Foley Street there, and made her way into Mabbott Lane, and then the guys pounced on her. And they kicked her to the ground, and she was holding onto a bib with the money in it for dear life. But then they pulled it that much that the, the bib busted and the money rolled out onto the ground. And Billy, when he was telling me the story, he said, Billy, did you, did you go over and help her? He said, no. See, I ran over and picked up the money like everybody else was doing. And then he said, even though she was old, she was back in business again. And I asked, I said, how old was she? She's in her very late, late 70s, right? Seriously, yeah. And then he said, uh, there's a reason for that, that women stayed out of that long. Because it kept them out of North or South Dublin unions, right? They, 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 were, they were in the house and they had their own little bit of uh, independence. So they were in the house. And most of the, the women that, went, that, were, that did live in the Monto, some of the prostitutes that kind of Walked there. Some of them were not them all walked for the madam. Some of them were independent, but they they would uh, they they'd end up in the top of the houses. Then eventually, as the years got on, they'd end up going down and down. Eventually, they'd end up in the basement, and that's where Shilling ago ended up in one of the basements. So we have a story where where uh, one of them dies in, in the in the in the in the basement in the house in Monto, and they couldn't get the, the box down the coffin to put her down put her into. So they had to put her over the railings, break in the window and lift her body into the box and pull her up by ropes and onto a handcart and away she went, you know. So you, 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 you have all these, all these stories here. So this, this here would be, uh, so the Madame Zamonto, uh, 
were making, making a fortune uh, uh, on, uh, on the, the prostitution. So, so basically what would happen is that they come to the, 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 the treaty, a lot, of, a, lot of the, uh, a lot of the madams thought the writing was on the wall, that the, the British were leaving, that there was no need for their brothels, they'd be closed up. But he didn't have to worry, because the new Free State Army, he started using the brothels just like the British, right? so there was no change. There was no change in, in the thing. So then, basically what happened then, you had, you had a guy that would come into the madams' lives, that would change their lives forever. This guy here, Frank Duff, he found the Leeds and Mary in 1921. He was, he, he, he was educated in both Belvedere and, and Blackrock College, uh, civil servant, and uh, basically uh, uh, he was secretary to Michael Collins. He was the last man to see Michael Collins leave Dublin for Bain Le Blanc. And uh, so he happened to, to get involved in the prostitution, and it was, uh, he was working with a Vincent de Paul. He ended up on the south side of the city going to visit some house and suddenly he discovered there was 18 women or something in the house selling themselves. And he, he was shocked. He went to find the, the, the local priest. He told the priest what he discovered and he asked the priest to come down to talk to these women. The priest said, what can we say to them? He said, come down and say something to them. So Duff recalls the priest came down and he said to the women, stop what you're doing, it's an offence to God. And the women said, if we stop what we're doing, who's going to feed us, who's going to look after us and how are we going to survive? So Duff said, you have a point there. So he said, if I get a place for you, would you uh, to bring you, would you come in a nice environment where I can talk to you and the whole lot? So they all agreed except one woman. And she would become famous in Irish history as, uh, as Lizzie O'Neill. And her real name was Lizzie O'Neill. She went on her street name, would be Anna Bray. And uh, I don't know anybody familiar with Anna Bray. Ever heard of her? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, she, uh, so she refused to kind of engage with Frank Duff. So Duff finally went around the convents and the nuns wouldn't give him a place for the simple reason that the girls had to repent before they could be taken in, right? So Duff was going around various convents and he's about to give up and then he meets this guy who says to him, Frank, it's no point to checking the uh, convents around, uh, around, the, around the, the city, go out to the countryside and you get a convent out there easy enough. So the countryside for Frank Duff then was Baldoyle. So they went, to a, they went to a convent in Baldoyle and he met a mother, a mother, a mother Angela Walsh, I think her name was, and he told him what she was trying to do. And she said, well, look, I can't give you an agreement on that. She said, I have to ring the mother superior. So Duff, they knew, the Legion knew, if she rings the mother superior, it's going to be another no. So this is 1922. So they let her go off and she rings the mother superior and she says, according to Duff, we have some people here and you want to know candy. And that's all she can say, because the civil war was going on and someone pulled down the telephone lines and she never got an answer. So she thought it was a good idea, so she allowed Duff then to bring the women out to Valdile. And that's where the, the, the whole thing changed, right? So the, the women, were, were, uh, Duff recalls the women were crying, they wanted to get away from the life of prostitution, but where were they going to live? So Duff then came up with a plan himself and the priest, they approached William T. Cosgrave, uh, the Minister for Labour in the Free State, at the time, and because uh, Duff knew all them because he was a civil servant, and Duff, uh, Cosgrave agreed to help him. He gave him a cheque for 50 quid, he told him to come back the next day, and he gave him the keys of 76 Harcourt Street. And from the 50 quid, he bought beds in, 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 uh, in, in Camden Street, second hand beds, and cleaned out 76 Harcourt Street, and then, uh, then basically opened her up into the first Sanctum Maria hostel for prostitutes, right? 
So uh, women trying to get their lives back together. So Duff was very happy with that. He was doing great on the south side. And then what brought Duff into Monto was that one of the girls, two of the girls left and went back into, into, came into Monto, into the prostitution. So Duff announced in, in the hostel that he was going down to Monto to get them. And some of the former prostitutes told him, don't go down there, Mr. Duff, you'll be killed. The pimps will cut your throat. Now there's been several, really and truly, lots of murders in Monto. And uh, so, uh, so Duff thought better, he went to see a local priest. He didn't want to get involved for the fear of scandal, right? as if there's no priest in Monto. There was, we know them. We know from, from, from people who interviewed, he called them the silent priest. One woman said, when we used to see, recognise the priest, how are your father? He'd just go <coughs> and walk off, like, you know. So, so we, we know that. So Duffin, anyway, uh, decides to come down. He's told, he's told that, there's, there's a, uh, that Meg Oblong, the Queen of Monto, the Queen of Monto uh, has given up prostitution and she's now, uh, she's now sending money from a shop, uh, she's now sending money from a shop into charities and into, into, into churches and things like that. She's given lots of money. So Duff recalls, he goes down to her himself and, 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 and the fellow legionnaire, Joseph and Plunker. He goes down to this shop here. This is in 1923. So Duff comes into the area in 1923, February of 1923, and he sits on the mission to try and help. Uh, that's Joseph and there. So they go down to see May Avalon. And then she, she's, uh, he's introduced to May Oblong, she brings him in, and May Oblong says, I, I do this for the church, I do this for the orphanages, and I do that and the whole. And then she says to Frank Duff, how can I help you, Mr. Duff? And he says, uh, well, two of our girls are uh, in the house on, on Railway Street, and can you help us get them out? So she blew the, had a seizure. She said, get out of the shaggy house and turn Duff out of the house. Didn't want that and got to do with him, right? But Duff went looking for the women, and... Uh, he wasn't a man to be put off. And uh, so he found, he found the women. He found the women here in number eight, Elliot Place. So he went in there. This is where he would rescue the first prostitute uh, in Monto. Uh, he found the, the girl that he was looking for that left the hostel. She's now sick. She's lying in the bed. And Duff goes into her, himself and Joseph and Plunker. And they're trying to convince her to come, out, come away and seek medical assistance. Eventually she agrees. Duff orders a, a, a carriage, uh, from, uh, a horse-drawn carriage. And then uh, she'd borrow it out and put it into that. She'd take her to the Lock Hospital. She lived for about three, three or four months. And uh, when she dies, uh, some of the former prostitutes from the Sancta Maria Hostel and prostitutes from the, from, from the Monta walk behind the house out. Duff found no one was trying to kill him. That, you know, he, he, he was okay. So he came back in, he came back and walked in the area. And then what he was doing was going to the madams with the women, saying, much does she owe you? And paying their debts and getting them out. And that's what he was doing. So the year is now, uh, the year is 1925. Duff is, uh, is, is going around and he's still trying to help the women. So this would be a typical scene on the corner. Now I interviewed the woman that was in number 10, right? And I said, I showed the photograph, she said, that's where I live. And I said, was your window broke? She said, no, 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 no. My grandfather put that up to stop us looking out at the girls on the corner, right? And uh, uh, she said, you know, so she said, you used to stand at the corner. And that would, that, that would come in from Porton Street and that would bring you out on, onto, uh, onto Railway Street where the big, the big uh, some of them four storeys over the basement, some of the big houses were, right, that, that the madams had. Uh, so, uh, so basically Duff comes in there and he sets on the mission then to try and eventually close it down. And uh, he's having 
spending a lot of money buying the rescuing the girls. And then he's about to give up. The year's 1925, 19, and he's about, he's, about, he's about tired from doing what he's doing. And he meets a local priest that helped him on the south side of the city to get the, the hostel up, up and running on the south side. And he's now going to do a religious retreat in the, in the pro-cathedral. And what happens is, right, Duff says to him, why don't you make Monto the central team of the retreat and condemn the madams of Monto for what they're doing to these poor and unfortunate women? So the priest agrees. So Duff gets his, he gets his, uh, his members of the Legion of Mary, members of the Vincent de Paul, and anybody else that would help. And they go around the tenements telling the people there's going to be a religious retreat in, 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 in the pro-cathedral, and they're going to condemn the madams for what they're doing. Now, the madams weren't scared of the DMP police, the British, or anybody else, but just scared of the power of the church. So next of all, we know from talking to the locals, the madams were scared stiff of the power of the church, right? Word was coming back that the priest was banging the pulper up there, saying they're going to burn in hell for what she's doing to the women. So the, mad the madams were rattled. Duff got to hear about it. So himself and the priest organised a meeting with the madams, right? And he had a meeting in the Belvedere Hotel in North Great George Street. And from there, he summons the madams of Monto to come to meet him. And uh, the first madam come up was a Mrs. Mean. And uh, she said, how can I help you, Mr. Duff and Fathers? She said, we want you to close your house. You're running for immoral purposes. And she said, thank God you asked me that, because I always wanted to do it. And she said, look, I go to when I go to confession, I can't get absolution. But now that I'm going to help you, I can reconcile myself with the church. And then as she's leaving Duff recalled, she says, Mr. Duff, I'll help you as well to close with the women in Monto. So they were blown away. So what comes the next, madam? What do you want? Close your house, you run for murder purpose. Couldn't do that. Or you owe big money to business people, and uh, I couldn't close up. If you give you 40 pounds, would you close up? And he, yes, 40 pounds will do. So next of all, the madams are coming up, they're all getting 40 quid and 40 quid and 40 quid. And then the Queen of Monto was the last to come up. She comes up in a carriage. Now, she was known as Cameo May, right, May Oblong. She wore big cameo earrings, big fur comb, come up in a carriage. And she goes into the Beverly Hotel, and they're saying, what do you want? Close up your house, you're running for purposes. And basically, Duff doesn't use this language, but he can just gather. She bangs the table and goes, don't effing mess with me or to the priest, or I'll open a brattle beside your presbyteries, right? And they said, we'll use the police against you. So May knows the rightness on the wall. So all the madams now have agreed they're gone, they're closed up. So Duff comes down to the area to see that the madams keep their word. And then when he gets there, he finds two of the brothels are still open, right? And he's standing there, and out of nowhere comes this guy called the Puzzler Hamilton. He puts his hand around Frank Duff and says, Hey, Frank, uh, I work for Madame Sons here, giving her 40 quid. And he said, That's right. He said, Keep your 40 quid. It's 1,500 of us still in business. So Duff said, That's blackmail. We don't have that money. He said, well, take her leave, we'll be in business. So Duff knew, if they don't nail this down, the brothels are going to spring all opened up again. So he goes and tells the priest what, the, what he's learned. So they go to see W.R.E. Uh, w. Murphy, he was commissioner of police at the time in Dublin Castle. They tell him what they're trying to do. So he said, that's no problem. So he rings down to Star Street and he gets the superintendent Ennis on the phone. And he said, Ennis, I want that area closed up, blah, blah, blah. So he puts down the phone, he tells Frank Duff and the priest, don't worry, that'll happen, right? So Duff is delighted that the remaining brothels are going to get raided, right? So Duff is down the area with this information, and he's walking around, more or less smiling to himself. But he, he recalls he meets a policeman on the beat, and the policeman calls him over and says, hey, Frank, I'm about to tell you something, he says, says he, don't say where you got it from. 
He said, the lads in Store Street Police Station are not going to put any effort into it. They're going to come in and kick in a few doors and break a few windows and cause a bit of disturbance. But they're not going to, uh, they're not going to, uh, what you call it, uh, do the work, uh, close it down. So Duff then goes, tells the priest, they go back to see him. He rings Store Street, he said, I want the area closed down. So on the 12th of March, hundreds of people, uh, on the 12th of March, hundreds of police roll into Monto. They, remade, they, they raid the remaining brothels in Monto and uh, basically close her up overnight. But Duff is de determined to do something bef before the madams uh, rise again. He organises one of the biggest marches ever seen in the city. Hundreds of people lined up outside the pro-cathedral church and uh, there's a man at the front carrying a big crucifix like that in his hand and they're waiting for the priest to come out of the pro-cathedral and they come out in full battle dress and they lead the march down through the streets singing hymns, right? And as, 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 as they get down there, uh, uh, Duff has this plan that he's going to do. So I'm going to let you listen to a man whose father carried the actual crucifix in the mantle. He played the mantle. James, Jeff, Paul. Well, he, he, yes, he told me about the, the time that the, the clergy in Marlborough Street decided that they would go behind. I don't know what... How to how he described it, but I suppose it was to drive the uh, the prostitutes and and their lot out out of that area, and they, they marched from the pro cathedral, uh, praying and and uh, singing hymns, and uh, he he was at the front there with the with with the, the the cross, the crucifix, and he carried that up up to to Monto, Monto itself. So. Right. So basically what happens is when they carry the crucifix in through the streets, they go in through here, right, Elliot Place, and they come to the big wall. And where the arrow is pointing there, that's where they, they, they're all there, and the priest calls someone get us a table. So they bring out a table from the nearby one of the rooms, and he gets up on the table and he says, good people of the area, we cleanse this area for you. We want you to keep it clean for future generations. And when he's finished talking, Frank Duff gets up on the table and he asks, can somebody get me a, a, a chair? So they get in the chair and he stands up in the chair on the table, takes out a hammer and a big spike and drives her into the wall and hangs the crucifix on the, so on the wall as a solemn taking of the area back for the people, right? So what happens to the madams, right? The madams don't go anywhere. The madams become the pillars of society in the area, right? The, uh, what you call it, uh, uh, so basically, uh, Duff, Duff is, the legion keeper keep an eye on, keep an eye on, the, on the things that's going. So, uh, so Frank Duff organised, he organised one of the first men's clubs in the area in Lady Anne's Lane. And they, they, they have the locals keep an eye on the case the madams rise up again, but the madams never rise up again. So now the madams uh, are you now reconciled themselves with the church and they can be seen in, this is like similar to the march into Monto, like this one here. I'll show you this. So that's the Tin Church in Sean McDermott So the madams, according to the locals, could be seen in there after Monday closed down, burdening candles by the dozens, <laughs> trying to reconcile themselves with the church and things like that. And then the pimps that carry the cutthroat razors and the, and the, and the, uh, the lead pipes, they're evangelised now and they're carrying rosary beads, right? <laughs> so so Monday effectively is closed down, right? But then, he, he, he started to, to, to start and then, in 1932, an unusual, not so much an unusual event, but the, the Eucharistic Congress 
comes to uh, Torrent, a million people going to appear, uh, go to the Mass in, 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 in Phoenix Park because the paper legacy don't say the Mass. And basically, there's not many people come into Ireland. There was ocean liners better than Dunleary, and because they couldn't go into the Liffey there, it was too, too shallow. And the churches they couldn't get into, so they cleaned out the cargo sheds along the docks, they turned them into temporary churches. But the visitors couldn't get any food in the, in, in the cafes because they were built out, packed out the whole lot. So the priests sent more down into Monto. Could the good people of Monto help feed the visitors coming into, into the city to feed and get some food in the whole lot? So he took out the tables and lined them all up along what's now James Joyce Street, all the way up and all the way back. And the, and the, the, uh, the what you call it, the, the sheets that we cleaned in the Magdalene laundries nearby was thrown over the tables, right? And they brought out pots of tea and sandwiches to the visitors from all over the world in Monto. My Oblong was in a shop, looking out a shop window. She was never a woman to miss a trick. She was rubbing her hands with delight. She's now selling religious icons from a shop window. <laughs> so she would die then in 1934. And then, uh, then the last man to die would be Becky Cooper. She died in 1949. So Monto effectively closed up. They stuck down the houses around the... Uh, 1939-1940, and they built, they built the flat complexes of Liberty House Flats and uh, St. Mary's Mansions. So, uh, so that was effectively closed down Monto in, in, in many ways. But here's what happens. According to the locals, people were so afraid uh, of if, if religion in many ways that there was a doctor who came. One of the, the original doctors came. Uh, th that used to treat him in Monto, and uh, he took sick, and he sent out this doctor, and suddenly he discovered he was a Protestant doctor, so no one would get him, because they were afraid he'd make him change his religion, right? Now you go to see them. When you hear this woman telling, well, he he yes, he told me about the horrendous.
And one evening I was going in around half seven of a window to get my grandmother. He gave great medicine, little square buttons to wear, real medicine buttons, you know. Going in for a cockpit. And I got a base knot on them. I was dragged up upstairs, you see, got another base knot, another one. So I was afraid to go anymore. No idea what went on. Straight, they're talking about vengeance. Oh, amen, amen. Men bet men up, and women bet women up. Oh, God, yes. So, so basically, you, you have that type of your fear if, 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 if that. Someone has told us that the story was when he goes to visit you in the house, when he leaves, you're a president, right? <laughs> and so, some people said people died in the houses. They wouldn't get him. They just wouldn't get him. It was just absolutely scared stiff, the whole lot. So, uh, so, but basically, they talk about getting the medication and. Basically, when he went to see the doctor, he gave out what was called M&B tablets and a, and a syrup, a cough syrup. And the cough syrup wasn't working, right? So, but somebody discovered it was, it was valuable to use in the tenements. And when I was interviewing the woman, she said to me, do you know what we used it for? And it came, word went around the area, it was great for killing flies, right? <laughs> and I said, how did he kill the flies? She said, what he did is, right, you, you went, you, you, when, when you went to see a doctor, you had to bring a bottle with you, right? You had to have your own bottle. Right? He wrote out the prescription, you went out from his surgery, out into the hallway, there's a guy there with all the concoctions and stuff, he'd mix it up and give it to you. It, and some people used to get Guinness bottles straight from the pub and bring it into him. And even with the Guinness in the bottom, they used to pour the stuff in, didn't care. And uh, so but I said, how did, how did it kill the flies? She said, they used to dip a string into it, right, down, and then pin it onto the ceiling. And it was that tacky that the flies had land on it and stick to it, right? And they, you know, they couldn't get off it. And then one woman said, we used to plead with her, Dad, Dad don't do it till we, come home, till we come home from school. And I said, do what? He said, what he used to do is, when, he, when we come home from school, he'd take down the strings with all the flies on it, and we'd gather. We'd gather around the fireplace, and he'd throw them in, and we could hear the flies exploding. <laughs> so that was the entertainment, right? <laughs> that was their entertainment, the whole lot, like, you know. And then, like, it, it stories where they took up the floorboards that was nearest to the wall, and, and I said, boy, well, we, we wouldn't be walking on those floorboards. They were burning them in the fire, <coughs> right? Took the skirting boards, they took the things down the hole. And she said, one woman said, I used to see my friend in the next room down there. I used to talk <laughs> down there. <laughs> so these are all the, the, the stuff. Look, we've, we've tons of stuff on Monto. We usually do the walking tour and tell a lot of stuff. Look, we stuff about the killing of the spies. What the, the women in Monto, how do you, do, you, do you unmask a British boy in Monto? The whole so there's, there's tons of stuff, particularly on tenement life. We have a lot of stuff on the, on the, on the tenements, what he did. There's a w one short piece here. Uh, if I can get it on now, will you? You know, you have... Well, he, he, he has it. I'm so mad. What's going on? He was a... And all the people died to see those. A child died now. Say, died from diphtheria or, the, or measles or... Uh, Hooting cough or anything, a child's ailment, you know. Uh, you wouldn't go to hospital, you had to keep the child at home. The child would be uh, waked out on a table. Uh, then there was a collection made for it to buy a little coffin. You wouldn't have the money yourself. It'd be a collection made to buy a coffin. And uh, the neighbours would do it. They all had one another with a couple of coppers. And the child then would be put into the coffin. And it'd be there for uh, two days and two nights. But never went to church around. The police wouldn't have the uh, young babies in the church. They weren't allowed into the church. And whether they were baptised or not, they weren't allowed in. But uh, the baby then had to be buried after two days. And you're lucky, like, if you've got a, a, 
a relation belonging to you, unless you bathe the child in there. You know, I know my mother has a couple of children from dead, died, died and buried, but if she was alive today, she wouldn't know where they were buried. Um, well, there was plenty she was growing, selling coal uh, on horse and cars, and uh, if they, uh, anyone wanted a little baby buried, uh, they take the long lorry away, they just put, have the horse, a pony maybe, you know, and they had alone with a small yoga thing called a dread. But need you put a pattern inside on the, on the thing, you know, and the little coffin up behind them. There'd be someone with... So basically what he had was the coalman taking the dead children down the thing, the whole So that's the end of the thing, and anyway, so I hope he's enjoyed it. Anyway. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History. This festival is brought to you by Dublin City Council and organised by Dublin City Libraries in partnership with the Dublin City Council Culture Company. For further podcast episodes and for all the latest festival news, be sure to visit dublinfestivalofhistory.ie or follow us on Instagram.